A charitable and kind man, let's call him Atticus, is distrusted by another, Theodore, for reasons out of Atticus's control. Atticus knows that Theodore plans to take the low rather than the high road to Carthage, a road dangerous from persistent threat of violent thieves. Yet Atticus also knows that if he were to warn Theodore of the danger, Theodore would interpret the warning in an opposite manner. That is, he would see Atticus as trying to get him to take the more dangerous road and become convinced the safest road is in fact the dangerous low road. Atticus's best bet at protecting the life of Theodore is to lie, to tell him that the high road is uh, very dangerous and that the low road is the safe one to take. Now suppose you're Atticus's friend. How should you counsel him? Should he tell Theodore the what's come to be called the officious lie, as it's uh, come to be called? Or should he rather remain silent, leaving Theodore at great risk of death by thieves? More philosophically, is asserting what is false for the sake of bringing another to the truth even constitute a lie, officious or otherwise? St. Augustine resolutely decries speaking falsely with the intention to deceive. This is, in fact, his preferred definition of lying, speaking falsely with the intention to deceive. St. Thomas Aquinas picks up Augustine's definition as he follows Augustine on most matters and continues this, this definition. But the Catholic tradition has not always been uniform on this point. Especially prior to Augustine, in the patristic period, lying in relatively limited circumstances, most notably uh, when a liar's intentions are good and the lie was practically unavoidable to secure grave goods such as life, uh, lying was seen or defended by at least some of the church fathers as permissible. These uh, fathers include St. Ambrose, St. Clement of Alexandria, Hilary of Portier, John Cassian, and St. John Chrysostom, as well as Origen. In the modern period, St. John Henry Newman has defended lying as well with the similar circumstances. Although I should add that uh, John Henry Newman's defense of lying in some limited circumstances is expressed with great hesitation. He expresses as, as an opinion only on a subject matter that he does not feel especially qualified to speak on. Most of the patristics will point to examples such as the Hebrew midwives who were asked to execute uh, the Israeli uh, boys by the Pharaoh. The, the midwives claimed to the Pharaoh that the uh, um, Jewish women were so hardy that they were able to give birth before the midwives ever arrived, and that's why the Jewish boys continued to live. And in Exodus 1, 19 and 20, um, we're told that God rewarded them, that they were blessed it doesn't say blessed for the lie, but it does say they were blessed with the implication that they were blessed for lying. Uh, similarly, there's a case of Rahab in Joshua 2 that's a, a well-known example that's usually um, put forward as another example of pious lying or lying uh, that's permissible. Now, my talk today is not so much historical, nor shall I point to examples of authority. Instead, I'm going to defend the position that has come to be known as the consensus position, attributing the earlier debate among the fathers to the relative absence of systematic moral thinking available at that time. For after Augustine, Catholic thought shifts decidedly against the morality of any lie, as, I'll show, as I will explain. At the heart of the shift was an increasing attention to universal principles. In the 8th century, 
uh, Gratian collected and systemized what was otherwise a disorganized body of legal decisions and policies promulgated by the church, thereby forming a single body of canon law. Surprisingly, having a single body of canon law was a huge achievement. This effort to move from the local to the universal, the scattered to the organized, was an advantage offered by the West's increasing peace, a part of the Carolingian Renaissance of the 8th and 9th century. By the time of the High Middle Ages, St. Thomas Aquinas was capable of systemizing great breadths of, of previous philosophical and theological tradition, as well as explain the principles that motivate that tradition more methodically than many had before. The principles that became central to the moral thinking of the church did not originate within special revelation. Inspired by texts like that of Romans 2.15, which speaks of a law written on the hearts of the Gentile people, Christian thinkers saw in the moral tradition of Plato, Aristotle, and the Stoics, among others, a tradition which came to be called natural law, the principles informing God's revealed moral code a deeper explanation of the truth of the revealed moral law contained in the Ten Commandments. What is this thinking? According to natural law, we all seek happiness, and morality consists in the principles that order that pursuit. We can only be truly happy insofar as we satisfy the inbuilt drives of our nature, especially respecting the hierarchical ordering of those drives though we can experience transient joys and ways at odds with real happiness. So natural law doesn't say seek pleasure or seek joy. Um, that would be a mistake. There's a later moral theory that does say that. Natural law says that we should seek true fulfillment, true flourishing. And it gives us an account of what that flourishing looks like. Human flourishing is satisfying the natural longings of human nature, these appetites. Um, so for this reason, the natural law takes as a primary object of analysis the various appetites that drive our actions. Appetites can be understood as inclinations, to use our natural powers towards their natural ends, as each power has a structure built to characteristically achieve a distinct goal. Both the acts and the objects of our appetites are central to our happiness, but moral goodness corresponds to what's under our control namely the use of reason to order our actions appropriately, doing what is in our control to achieve the goal of the powers we employ. Natural law is for this reason what I would call orientationist, in the sense that moral goodness consists in reason ordering our actions correctly. We have the right orientation, whether or not we actually achieve the goals that this orientation seeks to achieve. Now, I hope I haven't lost you in abstractions. We have an appetite to eat. This is a very simple. As soon as you hear appetite, most people think about the appetite to eat, although we just have had uh, lovely appetizers. Um, a power that is aimed at nourishment and ultimately our physical health. We do well insofar as we do what is in our nature to achieve this goal. Very simply, to eat food in the natural and normal way. That's the right orientation. We're doing what's in our power to achieve the goal. We can thwart the success of this power by purging or by eating what is destructive of nourishment, such as powdered concrete or turkey bacon. <laughs> Although the circumstances and intention for which we act also play a role in whether the act ultimately satisfies our nature, 
eating, eating is generically or abstractly good. For a particular act of eating to be good, it must be done in the right circumstances and for a good end. These three, act, circumstances, and intentions, must all be good, must, also, must all be properly oriented to achieve happiness, for the action overall to be good. Any time an action employs a power away from its natural end, given that this necessarily frustrates an appetite, the act is wrong. Circumstances and intention are beside the point, for circumstances cannot change how human nature, cannot change human nature, nor how it flourishes. Circumstances can only make relevant the winds and hows of a natural appetite's appropriate satisfaction. So acts that frustrate natural appetites are what the church calls intrinsically wrong. Now there's nothing specially theological here. The idea is simply that in order to be happy, we have to satisfy our natural appetites. In order to satisfy those appetites, we have to use our powers in, our natural, in their natural ways or towards their natural ends. So anytime we're not doing that, anytime we're using a power away from its natural goal, we're doing something wrong, no matter what the circumstances or intentions uh, are in that case. An intrinsically wrong action is going to be wrong no matter the circumstances or the intention. It's wrong per se. It's incontrovertibly wrong and must never be done. This is not to say that all violations of our appetites are equally grave. It's just to say that they never become permissible in different circumstances because circumstances never make human nature other than what it is. It's the fixity of human nature that explains moral absolutes. The reason why it's always wrong to kill the innocent is because of something in the nature of an innocent human being and in the nature of killing that explains it. The fixity of human nature is a very important starting point, but it's also a crucial element in understanding lying. Now, circumstances matter in other ways. It's inappropriate to continue to satisfy cravings for food when one has achieved nourishment. So eating is generically good, but not in the circumstances when you've already had a full meal and you should really stop eating. Uh, to use another example, the natural end of sexuality is procreation. So actions that employ the sexual appetite away from procreative ends, acts which in modesty I shall omit, are intrinsically wrong. Yet an act of procreative sexuality is not good with just anyone. As I tell my students, it's not a good idea to swipe right and make a baby. We must confine our sexuality to that special friendship of unity aimed at positive procreation, namely marriage. Many other natural appetites could be enumerated here, but the topic at hand is lying. According to natural law, an act of lying is a disordered act of speech or communication. This latter appetite is aimed at the expression of one's mind. That's its natural end, the expression of our mind. This latter, the expression of our mind, is a genuine good. In order to illustrate the goodness or the essential craving that we have to express our minds, I find um, the following scenario, which I, it's, it's delightfully awful to think about, uh, but it illustrates my point quite well. There's a disorder of consciousness known as locked-in syndrome. I'm curious, has anyone ever heard of locked-in syndrome before? Okay, so I see a couple of hands. Locked-in syndrome consists of uh, a person who is fully conscious and aware, yet, so is aware as all of you are right now, and yet is completely incapable of moving their body. 
except very subtly they can move their eyes, though there's a variation called total locked-in syndrome in which they cannot even move their eyes. We've discovered this through uh, eye tracking devices um, where people have been able to respond despite looking like they're in what seems like a persistent vegetative state, they've been able to respond to yes or no questions using eye tracking devices. And so we've discovered that they're in fact fully conscious. The number of people though, who have been in persistent, um, sorry, who have been in locked in syndrome and only reported it afterwards when they recounted the stories uh, and the conversations that were occurring in the room with them is innumerable. This, this happens, it's rare, but it does happen often enough to be a scary thought. Imagine you're in a Russian prison. The KGB officer comes in with a syringe full of liquid and he says, give me the information or else I will inject you with this fluid which will cause you to be locked in for six months. Nothing will happen to you. You'll lay in a bed, you'll be fed through a feeding tube. Nothing worse than just being completely incapable of saying what you're thinking for six months. I don't know about you, but that sounds scary. I, I'd be, you know, depending on if it's a national secret or not, I, I would be pretty inclined to give them what information they're looking for. <laughs> so the, the capacity and the desire to reveal our minds is something that I think is truly innate, something that's part of our human nature. Given this view, it is intrinsically wrong to lie. For every lie uses the power of communication, not to reveal one's mind, but to communicate against my mind, or one's mind. It is disordered in the same basic way that sexual acts that are against procreation are disordered. In both ways, you're using an appetite, but you're using it away from its natural end. Now, the idea that lying is always wrong is a rigorous view. It must be admitted. I think we just have to tackle it head on. The Nazis at your door asking about the Jewish family you have in the attic. A simple denial, you know, because you know the, the Nazi in particular, he's simple-minded. All you have to do is say, no, they're not here. Any wavering silence, any dissimulation risks their lives or yours. There is something in us that wants the simple lie, the white lie, to be an option. After all, what right does that Nazi have to know otherwise? The world would be a better place if this Nazi was an error on the point of where the Jewish family is hiding. And yet, according to natural law, all such lies thwart our, degree, our nature to some degree, some more than others. There's another reason on natural law we, why we must care about revealing the truth. In addition to the power or the appetite for communication, we also have an appetite for society, a social appetite. Its end is the common good. Following Aristotle, our sociality is deeply connected to our dependence. A person's natural appetites are met poorly, if at all, when the individual is left in isolation. We had a very practical example of that during the COVID lockdowns. People in isolation, the, the number of suicides and now fentanyl overdoses have skyrocketed. Only within society will the individual achieve the perfection constitutive of happiness. And hence, natural law directs the individual to form and contribute to communities that will supply for their myriad human deficiencies. The common good consists in the proportionate sharing of the goods of the community, where goods must be understood as those things that contribute to the satisfaction of human appetites. 
A minimum threshold for a society's flourishing is that natural rights of individuals are honored. Rights being moral powers, and in turn protections, towards those various acts and objects of our natural appetite, and all that is derivatively necessary for their satisfaction. To use some examples, we have rights to life, because life is essential to the pursuit of happiness. We have a right to food, because food is an object of one of our appetites, namely the appetite to eat. And of course, we have a right to eat as well, to use three rather random examples. Other things being equal, we must give to others what they have a right to, those things they are deficient in and which they require for their own successful pursuit of happiness. A worker must receive his wage, a just wage, because it's the just wage that will contribute, essentially, to his happiness. A child must receive the love of his parent. As we all strive naturally for truth as the object of the natural appetite of the intellect, we are owed truth from others. For reasons just explained, rights are limited. After all, we are limited in what we need for happiness. And when rights and duties conflict, some rights of others contribute more to their happiness than my right contributes to mine. This also includes the right to know. Though we have a right to know the truth, this right is limited to those truths that would in fact contribute to our happiness. So we do have rights to know certain things. We have a right to know, for instance, moral knowledge. Now we all are born with certain elements of moral knowledge, but we, our parents, owe to us more knowledge than that. Why? Because it's moral knowledge that contributes most dramatically to our happiness. And since that's what we have rights to, what contributes to our happiness, we are owed moral knowledge. Of course, it's not just moral knowledge that we are owed. We also are owed the basic elements of what's required to flourish in society. Um, how to speak, how to acquire food, how to be a good friend. Lies are thus ordinarily wrong for more than one reason. They are an intrinsically disordered act, frustrating that drive in us to reveal our minds. They are also a socially disordered act, frustrating in others the natural appetite to know the truth. But as the Nazi at the door example illustrates, sometimes a lie appears to lack the social element. The Nazi would in fact be bettered by being mistaken. For the mistake deprives him of a temptation one has moral certainty he would succumb to. For this reason, we can, and in fact should quite often, remain silent on the truth, refraining from exercising our appetite to communicate rather than using it improperly towards an end other than revealing our minds. I'll return to this in just a moment. In some cases, we also have a duty to speak up, to not remain silent. Those cases are when by our silence we fail to respect another's right to know. All right, now I, I have a, a brief um, intermission because I, I had included in my paper an example that um, may reveal things to certain people in the, the room. Um, so um, I won't... Uh, how many tunes to let people know who I'm talking about here, but I will also, for uh, the sake of discretion, not include the example uh, that I have in mind, which occurs at one more point in this paper. Suffice to say, children have a right to know the truth about how our world works, especially as it relates to our lives. Hopefully this is enough to get you thinking about what I'm, I have in mind. 
All the same natural law does not prescribe brutal honesty. A bad act involves using a power away from its end. The proper orientation of speech is a conveyance of one's mind. But the complete revelation of our minds is not even possible. Not to another in this life by verbal signs or gestures at any rate. Only God can really know our minds. So we must all live with an approximation of our minds and ambiguity in our speech. Such ambiguity does not thwart the appropriate end of our words. After all, there is no finite body of verbal expressions, no matter how large, that is not open to alternative interpretations, even when we disregard weird and unnatural interpretations. You could double the size of the Bible and you would not resolve the debates. You could triple it and there would still be different sects arguing about how to interpret it. Ambiguity is pervasive. And there are social reasons why it is often useful to leave things more ambiguous than at other times, reasons arising from the respect that others deserve as their right among others. It's good to be a little ambiguous sometimes. What we cannot say truthfully, however, we must pass over in silence. For this reason, it is sometimes permissible to omit from our communications the complete meaning of our words, or to reserve in our minds the less ambiguous expression of our thoughts. Some of you may have some familiarity with this. This is a, a notion called mental reservation. My point in explaining this is that mental reservation is ubiquitous. It's a matter of degree. It's a matter of kind that the, um, we are always reserving our complete minds because we can't reveal the whole thing. But in order to explain when it's permissible and when it's not, a little clarification is necessary. All communication aims to reveal our mind, but not every speech act does so in the same way. Assertions are what we normally think about when we talk about speaking. I'm asserting or declaring this to be true and that to be false. And they represent our minds very simply, representing the world in the way that we judge it to be. And these include assertions about ourselves, like I'm hungry or I'm sleepy. They also include things about the world. I'm standing at a podium. Other speech acts are more interesting than that. For instance, a priest who declares the bread to be the body of Christ does not merely assert it. He makes it so. And that's interesting. This performative speech act reveals his mind in a different way. If through an innocent scruple, and after all, this has come up, I don't know how many of you have uh, heard the stories about bishops who baptized invalidly, uh, I'm sorry, priests who baptized invalidly, and uh, as a consequence of this, many priests, uh, the validity of their ordination was later um, discovered to be uh, not present. They were not actual priests, even though they might have been working in a, a parish for 10 years um, because they were never validly baptized. Um, so let's imagine that a priest has discovered a video that seems to be himself being baptized in whatever non-Trinitarian formula had been used. He has a, an innocent scruple about whether he continues to have the power to consecrate, I'm sorry, uh, the bread into Christ's body. 
If he continued to attempt this performance, it would be a sort of lie, insofar as this does not go with his mind. We can also communicate in other ways. Someone wearing the Roman collar or police uniform communicates a status in normal circumstances, and wearing a police uniform in public without being a police officer is a lie. There are other speech acts too. What about commands, such as clean your room, or questions such as have you finished painting the bedroom? Neither commits the speaker to some truth, and likewise varies from assertions in important ways. Are these wrong? I'd argue that the mind is not merely a repository of representations aimed at correspondence with reality. So one does not merely reveal one's mind by revealing one's truth-apt representations. We are more than representations in our mind, and so we can express our minds, not always by assertion. We are beings whose minds want to know, so we ask questions. We are beings who want others to act, and so we issue directives. Now, we must always assert using words. And words take their meanings not from a private language in our heads, but from being a medium of social conceptual exchange. The cachet of words arising from historical usage and phonetic similarities to other words, among many other sources, allows us a great variety of expression, but also constant ambiguity. But the fact that words have an external meaning also limits our capacity to convey our minds in an assertion, very practically. I could never answer yes to a yes or no question, thinking to myself, what I really mean is no. But my no, what I mean, will now take on the linguistic representation of the sound yes. I can't do that. That's not how words work. Words take their meaning externally, not by our intentions. Communication just doesn't work like that. Uh, communication involves a conveyance of what's in our mind to the world, and to the world requires that one's words can be understood properly, given the established meanings of the words we have chosen. Hence, if you're familiar with mental reservation, this is the reason why the church is always allowed and, and seen as permissible what's called broad mental reservation. The range of meanings for a broad mental reservation, the various ways you can interpret someone's statement, will include some true meaning. A true meaning to your words is possible and naturally available. Now, for a second, I'd like to consider a few objections to this view. So I, I consider myself to have laid out the natural law account of communication as well as many other powers. Now, for the sake of brevity, I can't talk about the many other powers and the ways in which natural law captures the essence of morality. There's a lot to be said about natural law. But of course, for the sake of time, I'm focusing here merely on communication. I want to say that because I feel like there's a lot of weight in its explanatory power, power I just cannot convey tonight. But for now, I think I'm finished in explaining what natural law says about lying and why lying is wrong. It's always a frustration of the, the human drive to reveal our, our thoughts. Now I'd like to consider a few objections and alternative theories. Here's one. This is one I hear from students. Isn't the language of the lie in our minds? Since, after all, we must first think of what to say, whether it's true or untrue, before expressing it. For instance, I must think to myself the sentence, there are no Jews in my attic, before I say there are no Jews in my attic. 
So aren't the thoughts in my mind? Isn't that lie actually an expression of my thoughts? The problem here is that we do more than say the words when we lie. We are not stage actors articulating a script. The context and tone of voice form another externally determined meaning. That is, an assertion. What we've done, given the context and convention, is assert. Not merely say words, but assert them. And it's the assertive part that goes against our mind. The words, you could say the words as an actor, not asserting them, and they would not be a lie. But when you are um, asserting them, when you're, when you're doing the conventional asserting uh, practice, uh, that is going against your mind. Here's a second objection. Could not the end of the communica communicative power be massaged somehow? You know, I, I said before, it's the desire to reveal our thoughts, but I just sort of dictated it. After all, maybe we could do something with that. Maybe we could think about an alternative end that would also capture it and would allow for lying. Why not think the natural goal is something like this? Just saying words and expressing noises. Seems okay, we could say it's that. Then there can be other constraints on the saying of words and expressing noises. It doesn't just have to be about lying or not, intrinsic to communication. The problem here is that words are not speech unless they are meaningful. We can't speak unless it corresponds to something mental, meaningfully mental. A parrot does not speak. It simulates speech. And of course, our power is greater than the parrot's, for we uniquely among animals have a power to know ourselves and the world and to express this in tokens of mutual understanding. But the connection to our mind is an essential part of what we do when we speak. So to, to describe the power merely as saying words and expressing noises reduces the power to the power of a parrot. But we're more than parrots. Okay, one last objection, and this one's more complicated. In the next section of the, the talk, I'm going to uh, critically appraise two people that I have very high esteem for. One is Janet Smith, and the other is Jimmy Aiken. So I, I want to start off by expressing the greatest respect for both of these figures, even though I must respectfully disagree with them. Okay, the last objection. If communication can have these multifarious ends, such as directing, asking, and the like, does this not make possible a white lie? A lie told when the hearer has no right to the truth, and when the expression reveals the mind in some other way. After all, it's not mere assertion, right? You can do all sorts of things with your communication, as I've said. Janet Smith, someone who I otherwise highly esteem, has tried to make such a case. In an article for First Things in 2011, she argued that the, a singular end of communication that I've earlier identified, namely revealing our minds, involves what she calls a pre-lapsarian understanding of the purpose of signification. All right, that's a mouthful, right? Pre-lapsarian understanding of the purpose of signification. What she's meaning there is that's a pre-fall account, and she's going to offer a post-fall account. So pre-original sin, she says, okay, Aquinas was right, Augustine was right. After the fall, they're not. Her argument turns on seeing lying to others as centrally violations of rights. 
And she thus compares lying to killing in a just war or commandeering property for good reasons. This idea she gets from the 17th century Calvinist natural lawyer Hugo Grotius, who defended lying in a range of cases. Now, I must admit, because Janet Smith will bring this up, that the theory of lying, that lying is wrong because it violates another person's right to know, was very briefly introduced into one of the versions of the Catholic Catechism. So it was present in one of the versions of the Roman Catholic Catechism, and it was very quickly withdrawn. It, it disappeared. I mean, I don't want to say it's overnight, because as we know, anything with the Vatican does not, overnight is, is not a word uh, in their vocabulary, but it disappeared very, very quickly um, after appearing um, for a short time. So she sees some support in the Catholic hierarchy for this view. So she argues that we can do more with communication than reveal our thoughts, and there is more to be done with communication in our fallen world. I'll quote, Before the fall, there would have been no reason to engage in false signification. Before the fall, all communication, all interaction was between innocent and trustworthy human beings. After the fall, however, all communication is between human beings damaged by sin. Now, language must serve many other purposes beside the conveyance of the concepts of our mind. We need to correct, console, encourage, and deter one another. These actions need not involve falsehoods, but they are a use of language that differs from the fundamental purpose of communicating truth. There are several problems I can identify here. The first is that she assumes what I have just tried to explain is wrong. She assumes that assertion is the only way to reveal our minds. That is, that the only way to properly communicate on the view I'm espousing is to convey truthful representations about the world. She takes this to be the aim of communication as such, rather than assertive communications uniquely. As I've suggested, our minds contain more than representations, so revealing our minds involves more than just assertion. But when we assert, we must convey our mind's representation aright. A second problem is that all the various ends she enumerates, namely consoling, correcting, deterring, need never involve lying, either abstractly or concretely, in general or in the specific uh, examples of our lives nor are all of them unique to the fallen state. I would have thought Adam could encourage Eve to um, not listen to the serpent, among others, and that's a pre-fall encouragement, one of the ends she identifies as a post-fall end. So, of course, lying to one's wife that the dress looks phenomenal may be more consoling than an evasive but honest response but we don't have to be consolation maximizers. The third and most striking problem, one that's deeply ironic in my view, given Smith's profoundly positive career on the subject, is that introducing a pre- and post-fall teleology or goal-orientedness into human nature makes possible similar moves in all our other appetites. Sex for procreation? Perhaps before the fall. Now we find to vary a summary I just gave, that we can do more with sex than make babies, and there is more to be done in our fallen world. I have to think she'd be pretty uncomfortable with that 
I must also part ways with another esteemed and highly respected Catholic intellectual, the Catholic Answers apologist Jimmy Aiken, who has recently, in both a podcast and in a debate with me, de uh, defended and promoted what he calls a doxastic damage view of lying. Now, I have to give Jimmy Aiken credit. My view on lying has such a boring name, right? It, it's like the lying is always wrong view or, or just the Thomistic view. There's no alliteration. There's nothing, you know, snazzy about it. So I, I really like doxastic damage. I wish I could have a name that cool. Um, I, um, according to which, lying involves a sort of damage to another's belief system. He often will use the example of uh, punching someone in the brain. It's a, it's a punch to their belief system, he'll say. According to this theory, damaging another is sometimes warranted, for instance, when it is for the other's good, or when the person deserves the damage. The Nazi at the door deserves doxastic damage. And the ailing widow with dementia is benefited by not being told again that her husband passed years ago. This explanation of lying has a lot of initial plausibility. It must be admitted, there's, there's something, um, because we do damage to someone in a surgery. We cut into them and cutting is damage. We also do damage to criminals because they deserve a punishment and that's a sort of damage to them. So there, there's a, a parody there and it makes a lot of sense of some intuitive cases that we want to explain. So there's a lot going for the theory in general. But as a philosopher, I realize the devil's in the details. It can't just be something going forward in general. We have to figure out whether the theory actually works, where the rubber hits the road. Without an explanation, I think, of the when and the why of when damage is justified, the theory devolves to one of the more common views available. Common views I'll talk about in just a moment. Now, one of the views is that you can lie when the other person has no right to know. Jimmy Aiken is reluctant to say anything about rights. What he wanted to say uh, is that we should lie or that the, the best account of this is charity, that it's charity that should inform our decisions of when to lie and when not to lie. I'll have something to say about that in a moment. But as I've just reviewed, two very well-known and respected Catholic intellectuals, Janet Smith and Jimmy Aiken's defenses of lying, I want to raise two problems for any Catholic defender of lies. The first is a difficulty in explaining the Catholic tradition following Scripture that says any lie against the faith, against Christ, is a mortal sin. So what Peter did, right, that's a mortal sin. And, and for us to do it as well is at least a grave matter, assuming all the conditions of mortal sin have been met. This is difficult to explain for any defender of lying because any anti-Christian aggressor, in his attempt to get the information for the sake of per uh, persecuting Christianity, has of course no right to know that. He has no right to know that the person in front of him is a Christian. He is in much the same position as the Nazi at the door. He deserves doxastic damage. So why can't we lie about our faith? A Catholic defender of lying can say that this constitutes a special exception to a general permission of lying in difficult cases. But for me, exceptions like this smell funny. 
There's a famous example in the history of cosmological accounts of the universe. Uh, some of you may know the Ptolemaic uh, model of the universe took the Earth as center and things revolved around it. Now, what's very interesting about the history of the Ptolemaic model is that it wasn't truly until the 18th century that the model was decisively proven wrong. Of course, people didn't often uh, believe that the Earth was the center of the universe in the 18th century, even though that's when the proof finally came. One of the issues, though, that uh, the, the Ptolemaic model had great difficulty in explaining is something called retrograde motion. Uh, some of you may know what this is, but if you look at the stars in the in the sky, sometimes you will see the stars form just a, a straightforward progression through the sky, through the seasons. But sometimes one of those uh, objects will seem to go backwards for a while and then go forwards again. This puzzled the Ptolemaic uh, defenders. The, the, the model had great difficulty in explaining what was going on with this reverse motion. Those of you who know this history know that what the Ptolemaic uh, defenders did is they introduced something which is now, if you tell a scientist, if you use this word around a scientist, they, they may consider it fighting words and you may have to walk outside. Um, but they introduced something called epicycles. So the idea was that the, the astral objects were orbiting the Earth like this. But in addition to a single cycle, there was also an epicycle. Epi is on top of in Greek. And so in addition to this circle, they were, <laughs> no one would like it if they were called loop-de-loos back then. Uh, but that's essentially what epicycles were. They were loop-de-loos. And so they, they just posited in order to explain this one piece of conflicting data, well, there just must be cycles on cycles. Now, cycles on cycles explains it is an explanation. And of all you're looking as an for an explanation, you've got one. But is it a good explanation? The history of science looks back at this moment as a pivotal mistake. And scientists as well as philosophers are keenly sensitive to not repeat the mistake in their own theories, to not put a band-aid on a bullet wound to see that some exceptions are in fact decisive and that introducing an unmotivated complication into your view, a cycle on a cycle, is a big problem. Now, it's hard to convey this because, uh, you know, if you're not hearing philosophy quite often, this might not seem like such a big problem. But for me, the idea that God just demands, well, you can never lie in that case for no reason at all, Unless lying is always wrong, it's going to sound ad hoc. It's going to sound like an epicycle. So why can't we lie to the, to the anti-Christian persecutor like we can lie to the Nazi at the door? A special exception here, it doesn't seem right. The exceptions strike me as ad hoc, motivated not by reasons independent, but by necessity. One might say that God merely commands it. God just says it. But here, a just lawgiver does not command without reasons. And the reasons why it would be wrong to lie in this case, but not in the case of the Nazi at the door, are relatively difficult to grasp. What's the difference? 
I would argue that a defender of lies has a burden here of explaining this unnecessary complexity, and I'm doubtful on the prospects. A second problem for Catholic defenders of lying is that if lying is sometimes permissible, then it seems like God might also be permitted to lie. If God can lie, presumably for noble reasons, then we cannot place our confidence in his revelation. Perhaps hell is just a literary device, a noble lie, a tactic to create bright lines against mortal sin. One could reason like this. If lying is sometimes permissible, then God might also lie. If God can lie, part of my religion might be false. If I know that part of my religion may be false, I cannot have certainty in its truth. But the church teaches that supernatural faith is certain. So Christians cannot be put in a position to believe their religion might possibly be false. And the only real reason, the only real way for that position to be ruled out is that if God cannot lie, and why could God not lie? Because lying is always wrong. Of course, God is truth, and we're not, but we aspire to be like him. And Proverbs 12.22 tells us lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are his delight. All right, now I'm going to very briefly entertain two more prevalent theories that I think both Aiken and Smith are relying on, and then I'll conclude. Today, one of the most well-known theories of morality is called consequentialism. Consequentialism says no act has an intrinsic moral character. It takes its moral character from the consequences. The effects uh, that are most commonly used in order to calculate this are uh, those asserted by the utilitarian, who says pleasure and pain are the effects of consequence, the effects that we must care about. So a good act is an act that produces more pleasure. A bad act is a, an act that produces more pain. And the right action is the one that produces the most pleasure overall. A utilitarian's happy to embrace lies all over the place, as long as the consequences are good. No, some lies do end up hurting. For the future is uncertain, and one can never truly know which lies to tell, but basic heuristics and common sense uh, give us the likely result in most cases. Your highly sensitive aunt got you ugly socks again? I love them, auntie. I needed them. How did you know? Consequentialism is, however, a devilish theory. For by its own lights, there's no act, no matter how heinous, that cannot in some set of circumstances lead to greater welfare and likewise be good despite the appearances. Torturing an innocent child to break the terrorist who knows the location of the dirty bomb. Scapegoating and executing an innocent victim to placate a massive, riotous mob. When the angels came to Lot's family to tell them to flee Sodom and Gomorrah, utilitarianism would appear to counsel the family and the angels to give in to the mob's perverse wishes. Of course, none of these examples are about lies, but if lies are permissible because consequentialism is true, then consequentialism is true. And we must go on to explore the implications. If the implications show consequentialism to be deeply mistaken, the defense of lies it affords should ring hollow. Those who defend lies from charity, as I read both Jimmy Aiken and Smith doing at times, sound to my ears like unconscious utilitarians, for they see the act of the lie not in, in, not in any intrinsic character, promoting or frustrating human nature of the liar, but merely in terms of the effect on the hearer, 
positive or negative. But the hearer is not the only one affected, nor are the after effects of our actions the primary explanation of its moral character. To fail to see this is very dangerous. A more constrained alternative defense of lying comes from Hugo Grotius, mentioned previously in the context of Smith's article. According to Grotius, human beings have an implied contract to use words according to a certain meaning. And from this implicit contract emerges a mutual right to be spoken to truthfully. Now, Grotius is ordinarily presented as merely defending a simple right to know along the same lines I used before in the explanation of natural law's rights. His view is a little bit more complicated. What he thinks is that there's an implied contract. And this implies that children who are incapable of consent to contracts can be lied to at will for anything. I shall not mention some of the examples that uh, I have here uh, for fear of revealing. Um, Suffice to say, Grotius gives you two thumbs up on all of those. Uh, Grotius argues that this contract can also be broken in a number of ways, such as because the hearer would consent if he had perfect knowledge of the situation, or lies for the public good can be uh, justified in a similar way. Uh, Lies can also be justified when the right of the other to know has been limited by graver goods, in a way reminiscent of my own discussion of rights and their, their limits. Like the doxastic damage view, this has initial plausibility, but there are significant problems. Can we really lie to children about anything we want as long as it's a good intention? This seems to go too far. Implied contracts themselves are problematic basis for moral norms, but for the sake of time, I'll skip over this. If we forget about the contractualist elements of his account and focus merely on the right to know, this leads to very funny problems, which I should admit, John Scalco has a wonderful book, Connecting Lies to Sexuality, and he also has a wonderful article in the American Catholic Philosophical Quarterly talking about Grotius's view of lies and the many problems it generates. One stands out in my mind. On Grotius's view, strangers have no right to know my personal business. So if I walk up to a lady in the grocery store and start telling her all sorts of things, nothing wrong with it. She has no right to know the contrary. That's right, miss. I can deadlift 850 pounds, and my uncle is Hugh Jackman. These are strange implications indeed. Back, I hope, to natural law. It does have a rigorous simplicity. I do know this. And for this reason, it may be worth mentioning one caveat on the subject. We do not sin when in a state of innocent ignorance, innocent relevant ignorance. And given the prevalent intuition, even among Catholic saints and fathers of the church, that sometimes a lie can be permitted, many people may be in a state of less than complete knowledge, ignorance even, that lying is always wrong. Such ignorance affects the culpability of the acts that result. It is reason that orders and makes right our actions, but if reason is innocently confused, the acts that result can have a sort of morally gray status. This is not to say that lying is a gray area. As I have tried to explain, the only plausible account is to think that lying is intrinsically wrong. But there may be cases where a person has not done wrong in lying because the wrongness was in the act only, not in the person's will. Ignorance does excuse. Still, we must not revert to mere authority or intuition in order to try to order our actions. 
For both authorities and intuitions often conflict, and likewise present us muddy water in many matters. The mind naturally longs for truth, and to satisfy this longing, we should see that it's always wrong to lie. Thank you.